Chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you have at least one Star Wars book that influenced your life. I know I have way more than one. Well, in our new venture as a nonprofit literacy organization, we are working to bring Star Wars books into schools and classrooms. Right now, we're running a silent auction fundraiser where you can not only support this endeavor, but get some sweet signed Star Wars books and memorabilia. It's a perfect holiday gift for that scruffy nerf herder in your life, even if that's you. All the links will be in the show notes, and this is important. Every single penny donated will go towards the books. There will be info on how to participate in the silent auction, and also if you want to just donate directly to us. So thanks in advance, and uh, enjoy the show. A brief disclaimer before the episode begins. There'll be some light spoilers for Battlefront 2 and Jedi Fallen Order. I typically forego the spoiler warning, but since those are video games that not everyone has had a chance to play yet, I wanted to give you some fair warning. If you want to stay completely spoiler-free, put this episode on pause until you've had a chance to check out the newer content. This episode will be here when you're ready. Still here? Good. Let's begin. Commence primary ignition. This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, or as close as a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hey, stop right there. galaxy that had once enjoyed a thousand-year peace now knows only fear. Caught in the grip of tyranny, it trembles before the might of a military dictatorship led by the most powerful war machine ever known. This new order is known as the Empire. It originates in the core worlds and reaches all the way out to the outer rim. But this isn't a conquering force. It didn't invade from a distant galaxy. The Empire was born from the death throes of a democracy, a democracy not stolen or seized. It was given away by the people. They handed it over to an authoritarian who promised peace, order, and stability. 
The most frightening thing about the Empire is not how a Dark Lord of the Sith brought an entire galaxy under the veil of the dark side, but how so many of the Empire's citizens never thought to question it. In this episode of Forever Star Wars, we're going to take a look at the Empire from the inside. What made it work? Why did so many people believe in what it stood for? And what was its undoing? Honorable representatives of the Republic, I come to you under the gravest of circumstances. Naboo's system has been invaded by the droid armies of the Trade. I object! There is no proof! This is incredible! We recommend a commission be sent to Naboo to ascertain the truth! The Congress of Malastair concurs with the Honorable Delegate from the Trade Federation. A commission must be appointed! The point... Excuse me, Chancellor. Enter the bureaucrat. The true rulers of the Republic, and on the payroll of the Trade Federation, I might add. This is where Chancellor Valorum's strength will disappear. The roots of the Empire took hold during the waning days of the Old Republic. The Republic had stood for a thousand years, but in that time, its system of representation became choked and corrupted by tribal partisanship. Bureaucrats and special interests controlled the legislation that was passed. The voice of the people no longer mattered. Once seen as a symbol of freedom and justice throughout the galaxy, Coruscant began to represent decadence and dysfunction, and out of touch with the lives of ordinary people. Conflicts that were once handled by the enigmatic Jedi, who usually resolve such matters quietly, were now unable to be resolved by either the Jedi or the gridlocked Senate. This political quagmire was fertile ground for someone seeking to exploit it for their own benefit. And the first step towards that goal was to manufacture a false emergency. This turn of events is unfortunate. We must accelerate our plans. Begin landing our troops. My lord, is that legal? I will make it legal. Senator Palpatine, working as his alter ego Darth Sidious, engineered a conflict where his home planet of Naboo was blockaded by the Trade Federation in protest of the taxation of trade routes imposed by the Galactic Senate. He played both sides against each other and managed to win himself the office of the Chancellor, a position that would afford him the opportunity to slowly erode the Constitution and strip away liberty a fraction at a time. He did it so carefully that most senators and the public in general barely noticed. It's the frog dog in the boiling pot analogy. If the heat is turned up slowly, the frog dog won't even know it's being boiled alive until it's too late to do anything about it. But the warning signs were still there. Palpatine preyed on the public's mistrust of government. Each act of constitutional erosion he enacted came with a promise that it was just a temporary measure, necessary for circumventing a stagnant and dysfunctional political process. Government no longer works for you, he told the people. But I will work for you. I alone. The power you give me, I will lay down when this crisis has abated. And as my first act with this new authority, I will create a grand army of the Republic to counter the increasing threats of the separatists. Palpatine's goal of undermining democracy extended to other institutions that functioned as checks and balances to hold corruption at bay, 
These included the free press, which he flooded with disinformation, often aimed squarely at the Jedi Order, another institution that was enigmatic and mysterious to average citizens of the Republic. Palpatine postured himself as an advocate of the Jedi, defending them against allegations that he had surreptitiously concocted himself. An example of this was featured in the Clone Wars episode Lightsaber Lost. Dave Filoni explains. We got to this sequence with these giant levitational billboards. The scene where Ahsoka leaps and slides down the face of Palpatine. He needed to be saying something. And so I wrote this whole speech where he's basically defending the Jedi Knights. The accusations that the Jedi created from war to give themselves more power over the government is absurd. And I would not stand for it. That billboard plays into things you see in Revenge of the Sith where Palpatine's actually feeding that idea to everybody. The Jedi Council want control of the Republic. They're planning to betray me. Palpatine was a master of playing both sides against each other. It's perhaps a cruel irony that the clones, who were created for one purpose, were allowed to develop individual characteristics. They may have been pawns in Palpatine's manufactured conflict, but down to the individual, clone troopers were unique and distinctive people with a desire to help each other in combat, while exploring individual identities and expressing those identities in distinctive ways. They changed their hair, modified their physical appearance and armor. Clone troopers were growing and evolving beyond their initial training and conditioning as soldiers. But just as they were beginning to explore their own humanity, their agency was stolen from them. The time has come. Execute Order 66. Yes, my lord. Order 66 triggered their programming made them automatons, ceasing to exist as individuals and suddenly becoming a deadly collective, a focused weapon aiming at a specific target. Right in the crosshairs were the Jedi. Before he could install himself as Emperor, Palpatine first had to remove the one obstacle in his way, the protectors of peace and justice. Once that was done, it would be many years before enough people could take a stand against tyranny to actually make a difference. The Republic descended into fascism. The Empire rose from the spread of fear, apathy, and a misguided desire for order. Imperial forces seized the opportunity to turn the effort to defeat the Separatists into a powerful war machine. The military quickly became the strong arm of the Emperor. Its framework, designed to strangle individuality and free thought and bolster conformism. One leader, one mandate, one tongue, one ideology. All efforts to promote anything contrary to these principles was crushed into submission or destroyed. 
The might of the empire was achieved through an oppressive foundation of strength. The military was divided into the Imperial Navy with its star destroyers, warships, and TIE fighters. This armada was crucial in policing the vast distances of interstellar space through hyperspace lanes. Ground forces were necessary for keeping individual planets under control. The Imperial Army achieved this with a formidable battalion of ground troops, including stormtroopers of different classes, and powerful assault vehicles, such as the all-terrain armored transport. Stormtroopers represented the muscle of the Empire, enforcers of order, and unlike their predecessors, the clones, they were mostly made up of individuals who, rather than being engineered for their loyalty, chose their conformity because of the power it offered them. They were believers, and that alone made them more frightening. The very design of their armor was meant to instill shock and awe. They were terrifying, but also super cool, super clean. Ralph McQuarrie is the grandmaster of concept design. I mean, he worked so closely with George, and he distilled down the essence of what George wanted, which was to create an image that was frightening. And I loved what he did with the helmet, because he basically turned into a very stylized skull. They look like skeletons. They look like death. But ground troops were only the beginning. The reach of the Empire was extended through its Department of Military Research, responsible for top-secret weapon design, the Diplomatic Corps, which oversaw the governing of occupied worlds, and the Survey and Exploration Branch, which scouted new worlds for potential conquest and depletion of natural resources. The core worlds of the galaxy capitulated to the Empire with little or no resistance. After all, they were mostly worlds of opulence, privilege, and status. The Emperor promised them a galaxy of peace and order after the chaos of the Clone War. And for many of the citizens who lived near the core, it seemed for a while that the Emperor had kept his promise. Life carried on much as it had before, but with a new emphasis on showing fealty to the Empire. But the worlds of the Outer Rim were not so easily swayed. Far from the gleaming prestige of Coruscant, the Outer Rim territories were often lawless, overrun with crime, and difficult to occupy. This is why the earliest seeds of rebellion found purchase in these wild, untamed worlds, and it's here that the Empire's hammer fell the hardest. The Outer Rim was a melting pot of nomads, settlers, farmers, trading guilds, countless non-human aliens, and a network of smugglers, pirates, and crime syndicates. Far from the high-profile core, lawlessness could go largely unchecked in these outer territories. Renegades, insurrectionists, and apostates to the Imperial cause could escape into the Outer Rim and often disappear. So it was of utmost importance that the Empire tighten its grip on these rebellious and ungoverned worlds. The Imperial Holonet broadcast should play here at all times! No one's requested it for, well, ever. It's the law. Because today is Empire Day, celebrating the 15th anniversary of the galaxy's salvation. 
when our great Emperor Palpatine ended the Clone Wars and founded our glorious Empire. On Lothal, Governor Price has commissioned a parade. Observance of Empire Day was one of the ways the Empire reminded its citizens, or anyone under its occupation, who held the power. It was a pageantry of pomp and circumstance, turning main streets into military exhibitions. It didn't matter whether you were a loyal imperial citizen or a dissenter, you were going to celebrate Empire Day if you knew what was good for you. For some rebels, showing allegiance to the Empire was the best cover story of all. This area's off limits. Did you see it? It's so beautiful. All the colors, it's like a, like a rainbow. Dad, what are you doing? Sorry, mister, my dad is just so patriotic, you know? Empire Day! I love it! All hail our glorious empire! Right, well, move along. Another reason the Outer Rim territories were targeted by the Empire was due in no small part to its multitudes of non-human races. Take a look at the faces of the Empire, and you'll notice something striking. Human. There are some notable exceptions, which I'll cover shortly, but the vast majority of individuals who were in service to the Empire were of the human race. The Emperor wasn't a big fan of non-human races. Palpatine believed the Republic's model of giving every species an equal voice was what led to the disorder and chaos of an ineffectual government. He believed democracy was a stagnant ideology that stifled progress. He believed the core worlds, with their large number of humans, shouldn't be governed by the whims and grievances of planets far away and comprised of races the core worlds had little in common with. Where are you taking this thing? Prisoner transfer from cell block 1138. I wasn't notified. I'll have to clear it. This resulted in xenophobia and a culture of prejudice within the Empire that regarded with suspicion any non-human race. Factor in the Clone War, which began when separatists, comprised of several non-human worlds, waged war on the Republic, and there was an underlying prejudice and resentment among humans for other species. Palpatine engineered the Clone War fully aware of just how easily he could exploit this prejudice and use it to further his populist agenda. While the general orders for military personnel within the Empire discouraged disrespect towards non-human races, the Imperial command structure generally ignored this standard or actively worked against it. The Wookiees, for example, were classified as a non-sentient race, so they could be exploited as slave labor. Anti-slavery laws, which had long been enforced within the Republic, were overturned, and slave labor became the primary means of feeding the Imperial war machine. And slaves were almost always non-human. The Wookiee homeworld of Kashyyyk was quickly locked down by the Empire because of the Wookiees' reputation as formidable warriors. Also, the Wookiees were known allies of the Jedi. That doesn't look good. The Empire is devouring Kashyyyk for its natural resources. Wookiees have been enslaved or displaced. 
Kashyyyk became ground zero for the Empire's plan to eliminate any potential resistance, it also became a hotbed for the earliest rebels like Saul Guerrero, who saw firsthand on Kashyyyk what the Empire was capable of. Imperial sap refinery lies dead ahead. What does the Empire want with tree sap? Nothing good. They refine the sap into a powerful compound, and they're rushing to expand production. We have to stop them. That's the plan. We don't know they're in game, but they spread themselves too thin. This map we've recovered proves it. These refineries double as brutal prison camps. We use those cutters to create a distraction, while you take your lightsaber and free the Wookiees inside. We need their help to stop the Empire. Understood. Within the Empire, a few non-human species were exceptions to the humans-only rule, but they were almost always individuals who had some prior relationship to Emperor Palpatine, or served his purposes in a very particular way. This is a crisis. The Senate must vote the Chancellor emergency powers. He can then approve the creation of an army. Masameda, a Chagrian, served as Chancellor Palpatine's vice chair of the Senate, and remained active within the imperial government structure under the emperor. A few non-human species with special force abilities were retained as inquisitors, who helped the empire hunt down and kill the remaining Jedi. The Grand Inquisitor was none other than a Powan, a former Jedi temple guard who turned to the dark side. I know nothing of a larger rebellion, and if I did, I'd rather give my life than tell you. So just like your master. Tell me, Jedi, how did you survive Order 66? Hmm? It was your master, Vilaba, who laid down her life for yours. Do you remember her last word to you? Her last and final breath before she died? You do, don't you? You see it in your sleep. You hear her voice when you wake. Tell me, Jedi, what was her last word to you? Run. Palpatine calculated that the best way to hunt Jedi was to recruit former Jedi and other Force sensitives, but he kept them on a short leash and subservient to the dark side. There were other non-humans who played various roles within the Empire, such as Protectorate Gleb and Aquilish, who was headmaster of the Imperial Preparatory School on the planet Vardos. Vardos, in fact, was touted by the Empire as an imperial utopia because it contained a diverse population of humans and non-humans alike, all faithful to the Empire. But it must be noted that many non-humans on Vardos enjoyed a life of luxury and weren't concerned with the suppression of non-humans and the conquering of planets elsewhere. Self-interest, it seems, was rewarded nicely within core worlds of the Empire. But despite the self-proclaimed utopia of Vardos, when it came to the Imperial Command, non-humans within the Empire were relegated to serving in subordinate roles. Command positions went to humans, with one notable exception. Grand Admiral Thrall. Grand Admiral? The Emperor recently promoted me after my victory at Baton. Well, Thrawn, what do you think of Governor Price's theory about the rebels in the Lothal sector? This is a pirate our rebels rescued from Naraka prison, Honda Onaka. Within the last hour, the Phoenix Squadron destroyed mining guild ships using the Zurita hyperspace waypoint. Taken separately, they may seem unrelated, but Onaka's cellmate was a laborer at our Starfighter reclamation plant in the Yama system. 
one jump point away from the Zerida attack. Grand Admiral Thrawn believes the rebels intend to raid the plant and steal fighters for their fleet. Every ship they add to their arsenal increases the threat to our own Amada and the Emperor's plans. I trust you have a solution. I will start my operations here and pull the rebels apart piece by piece. They'll be the architects of their own destruction. With cool blue skin, piercing red eyes, and a dulcet voice of clear and measured elocution, Grand Admiral Thrawn was a unique and imposing figure within Imperial Command. He was a member of the Chiss species, and he was a valuable asset to the Emperor. Thrawn's meteoric rise in the Imperial ranks was due in no small part to his brilliance. He was a skilled strategist who viewed every battle as a game of wits and every opportunity as a puzzle to be deciphered. Thrawn didn't fight his enemies, he studied them analyzed their culture and art, sought to understand their way of thinking. She's far more valuable than you realize. Uh, how do you mean? To defeat an enemy, you must know them. Not simply their battle tactics, but their history, philosophy, art. So I will ask you again, Captain. Do you know what this is? Some primitive native trinket. It's a Kalikori. A revered Twi'lek heirloom, passed from parent to child through generations. Worthless to outsiders, priceless to family. Yes, well, she stole it. Yes, but why? War. It's all you ever known, isn't it? You were so young when you survived the Clone War. No wonder you are as equipped in spirit to fight as well as you do. War is in your blood. I study the art of war, work to perfect it. But you, you were forged by it. Sometimes he gained tremendous respect for his adversaries in the process. But after knowing them fully, he was able to take them out more efficiently. When Thrawn focused his attention on eliminating his enemies, he did so with ruthless precision. But why would the Emperor, known for treating alien races as subservient, allow Thrawn so much agency? Why would Thrawn, a prospective observer of behavior, align himself with a power he knew to be xenophobic? That's really the central mystery of Thrawn, isn't it? One possible explanation is that Thrawn and Palpatine's relationship was symbiotic. Each needed the other, and for each, the other was merely a means to an end. The Chiss ascendancy, from which Thrawn hailed, was native to the unknown regions. Something dark and mysterious threatened the Chiss ascendancy in that region. It was elusive and deadly, and perhaps for the first time in his life, Thrawn was at a loss to explain it. It scared him enough to see the rise of the Empire as his chance to ally himself with the most powerful military might in the galaxy, and a powerful ally could help him defeat a mysterious enemy. Not coincidentally, Palpatine also became aware of this dark presence in the Unknown Regions, and he set his sights upon it. He was convinced it was reaching out to him, calling him. 
so he built observatories on the outskirts of known space, observatories on distant worlds like Jakku. His goal was to peer deep into the shadows of the unknown regions, chart routes through its mazes and mysteries, and what better person could help him with that than a Chiss? So we have two powerful intellects with aligned goals, willing to put aside their differences, overlook the Empire's prejudice and hostility towards alien races, in order to claim a bigger prize. Thrawn was willing to suffer the ignorance and taunts and racist slurs while he was in the Imperial Academy. He was able to withstand the dirty looks from his fellow officers, bewildered by his promotions and advancement. He did so because he had his eyes set on the big picture, and end game that was worth more to him than the respect of his peers. He was motivated by the survival of his people. The temple's been destroyed, but she'll be there waiting. We'll give her your name and hope that gets us a meeting with Saul. Hope? Yeah. Rebellions are built on hope. For many living during the reign of the Empire, survival became a way of life. Most simply kept their heads down, did what they were told, tried not to make waves or get noticed. But for a few, that wasn't good enough. Compliance with oppression was not an option. But to fight back against such a powerful adversary, the resistance needed something powerful to fight for. Hope was that spark. But what about those who believed in the Empire? One of the reasons the Empire came into existence is because many of the Republic's citizens decided democracy no longer worked. Aside from a broken, bickering Senate, what else motivated so many to abandon freedom? Like the aforementioned Vardos, many of the Core Worlds enjoyed privilege. They were close to the seat of power in the galaxy, so their interests were catered to. People of the Core believed themselves to be superior to other parts of the galaxy. They took pride in the Empire. It was their empire, not someone else's. They no longer had to share their government with beings they saw as inferior, or with interests outside of their own. One such family was the Versios of the planet Vardos. The Versio family dedicated its life to what the empire stood for, which was order. Garrick Versio rose to the title of Admiral, while his daughter became an elite special operations commander for Inferno Squad and they had a very different view of the Rebellion. So what happens now? We retaliate, Commander. The Empire will assault the very foundation of the Rebels' pathetic belief in themselves. Tell me, I mean, what is the source of their belief? Hope. Correct. For Imperial loyalists, the Empire was a solution to a chaotic galaxy. It was the New Order as the Emperor deemed it. They were part of it, part of what made it work. They believed in it. They were willing to die for it. And anyone who disagreed with this philosophy was a traitor. To Imperials, rebels were nothing more than a hate group. They were terrorists, as this moment in Battlefront II illustrates following a rebel attack on the Death Star II. This destruction is the true face of the rebellion. It's the reason we've been fighting so long. We tried to make them afraid, we only made them angry. Someone told me once that rebellions are built on hate. I never stopped believing it. How are we supposed to fight that? The Empire will change. Just like it did when they destroyed the first Death Star. We adapt or die. 
What I find really interesting about the thought process of an imperial is the cognitive dissonance. There's a lot of projection and deflection and all manner of cognitive gymnastics at work in their minds. In spite of the horrors committed by the Empire, Imperials saw themselves as the good guys. They grew desensitized to the atrocities. They had dehumanized the enemy to such a point that any retaliation was warranted. For most Imperial citizens, the Empire was made possible by one man who brought about the end of the Clone War and exposed the Jedi treachery. The Emperor kept them safe, and in return for that safety, they were willing to serve the Empire and follow its principles. To the average Imperial, those principles were worth defending by any means necessary, whether it be the stripping of a world's resources to keep their military machine thriving, or subjugating lesser, more savage races that were not as easily controlled. But when you strip away all the posturing and the desensitized atrocities, true believers of the Empire were dedicated to power. Sheer might. Survival of the fittest. Empathy was considered weakness. This training, or brainwashing, if you prefer to call it that, started early. Cadets were encouraged to get ahead at any cost. They were discouraged from helping their fellow brothers and sisters who failed. Failure was not an option. Failure was weakness, and the weak were to be destroyed. Cadets, you are descending into the well and must climb out with all deliberate speed. You'll be given the honor of serving as aides in Imperial Headquarters. Those who lose will be serving Taskmaster Grit and wish they'd stayed at the bottom of that well. I'm taking that prize. Uh, not today, Kel. Back off, Oleg. You too, Morgan. You're both going down. Actually, we're going up. The assessment begins in four, three, two. How exactly are we going up? One. Until this battle station is fully operational, we are vulnerable. The Rebel Alliance is too well equipped. They're more dangerous than you realize. Dangerous to your Starfleet, Commander, not to this battle station. The Rebellion will continue to gain a support in the Imperial Senate. The, the Imperial Senate will no longer be of any concern to us. Cutthroat ambition was the motivating force at the highest levels of Imperial command. Power-hungry officers were often clamoring for the Emperor's attention and posturing at every opportunity. The Empire's military strength reached its apex with the completion of the most lethal secret weapon, the Death Star. Imperial Command were in control of a weapon that would make the Empire the unquestionable supremacy in the galaxy. 120 kilometers in diameter, over 800,000 station personnel, a super laser with a 47 million kilometer range, the Death Star 1 was the crown jewel of the Emperor's arsenal of fear. Its variable reactor setting could target ships, cities, or entire planets. But while the Outer Rim posed the greatest challenge of lawlessness, it was the core world of Alderaan that was chosen to bear the brunt of Imperial retribution. Princess Lear, before your execution, I would like you to be my guest at a ceremony that will make this battle station operational. No star system will dare oppose the Emperor now. The more you tighten your grip, Tark, 
The more star systems will slip through your fingers. Not after we demonstrate the power of this station. In a way, you have determined the choice of the planet that will be destroyed first. Since you are reluctant to provide us with the location of the rebel base, I have chosen to test this station's destructive power on your home planet of Alderaan. No. Alderaan is peaceful. We have no weapons. You can't You will possibly... prefer another target, a military target? Then name the system. I grow tired of asking this, so it'll be the last time. Where is the rebel base? Dantooine. They're on Dantooine. There. You see, Lord Vader, she can be reasonable. Continue with the operation. You may fire when ready. What? You're far too trusty. Dantooine is too remote to make an effective demonstration, but don't worry. We will deal with your rebel friends soon enough. No. Overseeing this technological terror was Grand Moff Willif Tarkin, one of the Emperor's most trusted advisors. He was the author of the Imperial Doctrine, a manifesto that proclaimed that the Empire's purpose was to deconstruct false freedoms in favor of an absolute rule, where every member of the Imperial Order knew their place. Where Grand Admiral Thrawn had cunning aspirations in service of a larger goal for his people, Tarkin posed a greater threat because he was in it only for himself. He reserved his sycophancy for the Emperor, and everyone else was expendable in his bloodthirsty rise to the top, as Orson Krennic, the former director of the Death Star Project, soon learned. I believe I owe you an apology, Director Krennic. Your work exceeds all expectations. You'll tell the Emperor as much. I will tell him that his patience with your misadventures has been rewarded with a weapon that will bring a swift end to the rebellion. And that that was only an inkling of its destructive potential. I will tell him that I will be taking control over the weapon I first spoke of years ago, effective immediately. <laughs> we stand here amidst my achievement, not yours! I'm afraid the recent security breaches have laid bare your inadequacies as a military director. The breaches have been filled. Jeddah has been silent. You think this pilot acted alone? He was dispatched from the installation on Edu. Galen Erso's facility. I want to see about this. It was clear that Tarkin's own professional trajectory was to move as high up the corporate ladder as he possibly could. When he was installed as Grand Moff, his Imperial Doctrine was designed to institute the Emperor's new order in every corner of the galaxy. It contained three principles that would establish this order and create discipline through intimidation. Principle one was a consolidation of galactic territories previously divided into countless republic systems. Tarkin saw them as too numerous and messy, remnants of an ineffectual senate which the emperor was determined to dissolve. Tarkin sought to replace their respective governments. I have just received word that the emperor has dissolved the council permanently. The last remnants of the Old Republic have been swept away. But it's impossible. How will the Emperor maintain control without the bureaucracy? The regional governors now have direct control over their territories. Fear will keep the local systems in line. Principle two, turn the galactic holonet into state-run communication. 
Tarkin knew that the holonet was the fastest way to move information around the galaxy, and control was easier to maintain if that system was taken out of the public sector and placed squarely in the hands of the Empire. The Empire would use the holonet to coordinate military dispersion throughout the sectors and disseminate propaganda to its citizens, such as the annual Empire Day celebrations. Now, even the farthest, most savage realms could be controlled through a carefully parsed message that promoted the ideals of His Imperial Majesty. Principle three was simple, fear. The Empire had achieved dominion through superior military strength. The Star Destroyers, Walkers, and Stormtroopers were symbols of the Empire's dominance, but Tarkin felt they were not enough. The Death Star Project, which he appropriated into his doctrine, would be the final solution to discourage revolt in the galaxy. Rebels could fight in space and on the ground as militia had done since the beginning of time, but they couldn't fight a weapon which could instantly wipe out billions of people and cultures with the blink of an eye. The Death Star was Tarkin's ultimate dream of Imperial dominance. We analyzed their attack, sir, and there is a danger. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Rebel base three minutes and closing. But his arrogance didn't take into account the rebel resolve. When all one has to fight for is hope, one can never be defeated through intimidation. Tarkin learned that lesson the hard way. The Imperial mindset was relentless, but not entirely pervasive. Some Imperials had misgivings about what the Empire was doing. They began wondering if they were fighting for the wrong side. These detractors of conscience had to be careful, because even the slightest indication of doubt could be viewed as sedition and receive quick and severe retribution. Some of these Imperials, however, took a great risk to change sides. They included Wedge Antilles, a former Imperial pilot for the Imperial Academy, Crix Medine, who became a leading strategist for the Alliance, and none other than Iden Versio, who had a change of heart when the Empire targeted her homeworld at Vardos during Operation Cinder. But there was another Imperial we got to know very well, whose view changed gradually over the course of several seasons of Star Wars Rebels. ISB Agent Callus worked in security and was dedicated to keeping order in the galaxy and undermining revolts wherever they appeared. He was among the first Imperials to fight Saul Guerrera on Onderon, and he played a role in the genocide of the Lasat race on Lasan. Years later, his encounter with the Ghost Crew on Lethal would bring him face to face with one of the last remaining Lasats, Gerizeb Aurelios. You, Lasat! To say these two were bitter enemies is an understatement. Only the honor guard of the sun may carry a bow rifle. I know. <laughs> I removed it from a guardsman myself. 
I was there when Lassan fell. I know why you fear those disruptors. I gave the order to use them. Agent Callus, by all appearances, was the model Imperial. Stalwart and steadfast in his devotion to Imperial ideals. Unforgiving in his pursuit of the Empire's enemies. But Agent Callus was also a man who valued honor, and although he participated in the Empire's efforts to wipe out the Lassat race, he had a brief encounter with the Lassat during that purge that changed him. I can tell you exactly how to climb out of here. All right. We'll work together. I see you modified it for close quarters fighting. Impressive. But you shouldn't have it. It's not a trophy. I didn't take it as a trophy. The Lassat guardsman I faced, he fought well, died with honor. He gave me the rifle before. The Busan Kira. The what? The Busan Kira. In the Sat warrior way. When one is defeated by a superior foe, he gifts his weapon. I was... I was only doing my duty. It was nothing personal. Yeah, what the Empire did on the sun. I'll never forget it. We all have things we won't forget. I remember my first unit. The boys and I were deployed to Onderon to bring peace and security to a troubled world. We were on a routine patrol and ran into one of your rebel friends, a Lassat mercenary who worked for Saw Guerrera. I was lucky, knocked out by the first blast. I came to, but found I couldn't move. And then I saw him, the Lassat, calmly walk through smoke and fire to finish my unit off one by one. The injured never had a chance. Always wondered why he let me live. Well, you can't judge all the sorts as the same. Does that sentiment apply to Imperials? All the Imperials I know. He shared this story with Zeb while marooned with him on one of the moons of Geonosis. The two enemies had to rely on one another for survival until they could be rescued, and Callus was convinced the Empire would come for them first, never putting much value in the rebels' sense of honor or coming back for one of their own. He was, however, proven wrong when the ghost crew arrived. Choosing to remain on the moon, Callus watched as Zeb was reunited with his crewmates, and it became apparent that they weren't merely crewmates. Ah, Zeb! Told you he'd be fine. Zeb, you made it! We picked up your beacon. We were so worried. It wasn't so bad. We've all been inside a Zeb's boss. friends returned for him. They risked everything to find him. By contrast, when Agent Callus returned to the Empire, no one showed him any regard for having been missing. Admiral Constantine. Agent Callus. Nor would anyone in the Empire ever do such a thing. It was a distinction not lost on Callus as he retreated to the confines of his solitary quarters. There he thought about his own values and whether his current service was the best expression of those values. Agent Callus was an opportunity for us to see something in Star Wars that we hadn't seen very much of, an Imperial who changes sides, and at great personal risk.
Callus's loyalties shifted mostly off-screen, but by the time the audience realized it, he was revealed to be the Alliance's new fulcrum double agent. He smuggled information to the rebels, while maintaining the appearance of his imperial devotion. Agent Callus walked a narrow line between two worlds, and eventually it caught up with him. This is Fulcrum, with an urgent message. Thrawn knows about... By the light of Lothar's moons. That is your code phrase, isn't it, Agent Callus? Or would you prefer I address you as Fulcrum? I'm afraid your rebel friends won't receive your warning. Unfortunately for Callus, Grand Admiral Thrawn had set his sights on deciphering the Fulcrum mystery. Your technique is good, but limited by your training in the Imperial Academy. Predictable. His divided loyalties revealed, Callus decided it was time to choose sides. You talk too much! Thrawn's razor-sharp deductions led him straight to Agent Callus. For Thrawn, the quest to find the traitor had been a game. Disloyalty within the ranks sowed more chaos and needed to be rooted out. It was immensely satisfying for Thrawn, having his skills tested in the best possible way. You have the heart of a rebel. I'll take that as a compliment. It may have been a game for Thrawn, but for Agent Callus, helping the rebels was a matter of honor. And for quite some time, Callus had been unable to look himself in the mirror and believe he was serving the honorable side. But Callus's own cunning, no doubt developed and massaged through years of imperial discipline, had allowed him to go this long without detection. He found ways to hide his betrayal, even if it meant pointing an accusing finger at his fellow officers. The Rebel Alliance came to understand that some of the most valuable allies were the ones who could think like the Empire. Imperial ruthlessness, at least in the case of Agent Callus, helped the Rebel Alliance tremendously. So when Callus found a way to escape, he found refuge among his former enemies. But he also found something among his new Rebel allies he never experienced before within the Empire. Compassion. Kanan, thank you for taking me in. Thank you for risking everything. This is what distinguished the rebels from the Empire. It wasn't what they fought against, or even how they fought. It was what they were fighting for. It was the values of liberty and freedom, and the honor of standing up against tyranny and oppression and helping the weak. Compassion wasn't a weakness, as the Empire believed. Fear wasn't the only emotion that could motivate. Love was an even more powerful motivation. Friendship, camaraderie, loyalty, empathy. When the galaxy began to learn what it was the Alliance was fighting for, more systems joined the fight. More took the risk of standing up for what was right and inspiring others to do so. Imperial Senator Mon Mothma of Chandrilla has shocked the Senate with her treasonous remarks against Emperor Palpatine. I name the Emperor himself for ordering the brutal attacks on the people of Gorman. Their peaceful world is one of countless systems helpless against his oppressive rule. This massacre is proof that our self-appointed emperor is little more than a lying executioner, imposing his tyranny under the pretense of security. We cannot allow this evil to stand. 
Wow, did she really say that about the Emperor? I'm surprised she's still breathing. Lady's got guts. Senator Mon Mothma of Chandrilla was one of the earliest voices in the Senate to take a stand against the Emperor. In a time when politics made cowards out of most politicians, Mothma was willing to put herself in jeopardy to speak out against the atrocities of the Empire. When people of good conscience sit back and allow such things to go unchallenged, they become accomplices. Fascism can only flourish if no one cares to stand up to it. Apathy and indifference only made the empire stronger. Mothma paid a high price for her stand. She was forced to leave the Senate and go into hiding, which greatly diminished her public platform. But just like a true leader, she used it to establish a network of rebel sympathizers, and she put out a call for all of them to join the Alliance. Senator Mon Mothma, this is my crew, Zeb Aurelios, and out there in one of your bombers, Ezra Bridger. I know of young Mr. Bridger, and I thank you, Captain Aurelius. We saw your speech on the holonet. You really let the Emperor have it. I only wish words had more of an impact. Senator, let's forget this mission and get you back to Chandrilla to a proper hiding place. No hiding. My presence at the meeting is not optional. You mean THE meeting? Ask and I trust them to get me there. We're in the process of building an alliance, uniting the various rebel cells across the galaxy. My challenge to the Emperor was a call to stand against the Empire. My hope is all who answer it will see that they are not alone. I must be there to meet them. There, in orbit above the planet Dantooine, Mon Mothma put out her clarion call for help. For all its attempts to stifle and control dissent, the Empire was unable to control the hearts and minds of people of conscience. By exploiting and enslaving the most vulnerable, others were spurred to action to stop such oppression. Cause and effect, action and reaction, application of force only inspires more resistance. All the citizens of the galaxy needed was to hear a single voice, a simple call to action, to know they were not alone if they answered such a call. This is Senator Mon Mothma. I've been called a traitor for speaking out against a corrupt galactic senate. A senate manipulated by the sinister tactics of the Emperor. For too long, I've watched the heavy hand of the Empire strangle our liberties, stifling our freedoms in the name of ensuring our safety. No longer, despite Imperial threats, despite the Emperor himself, I have no fear as I take new action. For I am not alone. Beginning today, we stand together as allies. I hereby resign from the Senate to fight for you, not from the distant halls of politics, but from the front lines. We will not rest until we bring an end to the Empire, until we restore our Republic. Are you with me? And she waited to see if anyone was listening. She didn't have long before she got her answer. Look! As ship after ship emerged from hyperspace, the Empire's end was just beginning. They came! Look how many there are! This, my friends, this is our rebellion.
Thank you for listening to episode 13 of Forever Star Wars. As this year comes to a close, I'd like to thank everyone who makes this podcast worthwhile. My colleagues and friends at Clashing Sabers, Adriana, Drew, Lindsay, and most of all, Brandon, who inspires me every day with his dedication and passion and leadership. This podcast would not be possible without the support of my fellow fans, and I'm deeply honored to be part of the Clashing Sabers community. I'll have brand new topics to share with you in the coming year, so subscribe to the Clashing Sabers feed to stay up to date with future episodes of Forever Star Wars, as well as the other shows on the network. If you have ideas for future episodes, or you just have a question about any of the episodes you've heard so far, don't hesitate to email us at clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com. I'm currently taking a Twitter hiatus during the release of The Rise of Skywalker, but I'll return in February. If you still want to follow me, you can do so at DJM Marquee. And you can also find me on Instagram as MMarquee1205. To all my friends and family, whether they be Imperials or Rebels, have a very happy new year, and I'll see you soon. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember... Move along. Move along.